0: Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Racket Athlete Podcast. Today we have on Mike Margolies, who has worked with over 3,000 athletes from all over the world, who have sought, sought out Mike for his expertise in helping them to live up to their potential for over three decades. They David wanted his counsel and unique teaching style to learn about the game within the game. He has worked with athletes in just about every sport imaginable, from the Olympic professional ranks through to youth levels of sport. Mike has taught at four universities and completed research at the United States Olympic Training Center. He speaks about mental toughness training, emotional intelligence, mindfulness, and the use of imagery during training. He teaches you why you need to train mentally to be successful in life, not just in sports. He also works with athletes, performing performing artists, and business professionals exclusively around the world from Dallas, Texas. He studied under and was mentored by some of the most prominent names in sports psychology, including Bruce Ogilvie, Ken Revisa, and Bob Rotella. He's also the author of The Athlete Within You, A Mental Approach to Sports and Business. Welcome to the show, Mike.
1: Thanks, Chris, for having me on.
0: Great. Um, So how's your day been? Good?
1: It's been good. It's been good. Started early, but it's been good. Yeah. Yeah, good.
0: All right, so how we're going to start, Mike, is just by asking you and letting the listeners get a bit of your background, um, I mean, how did you get into sports psychology, and how did it become a passion, really, is what we
1: Well, I guess the answer to that question, Chris, is um, kind of the, the passion came from the way it got started. I was a, um, a decent athlete growing up. Yeah. Uh, but I, that was from very much from a physical standpoint. Yeah. You know, by the time I was 16, I could dunk a basketball. I'm six feet tall. and That's not necessarily normal back then. Yeah. Um, I could run fast. I could catch whatever was thrown at me and do a lot of things. But I never stuck with a sport very long. I played three sports in high school and quit them all. Yeah. Um, then when I got to college, I decided to play um, this game that here in this country we call football. Uh, you might call it gridiron football in Scotland or <laughs> that game that the Yanks play that looks silly with helmets and all this other equipment on. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I happened to be um, taking a class in college that was taught by the head football coach. And one day I asked him if I could come out for the team and he looked at me and he said, so where'd you play in high school? And I said, I didn't play. Um, And he's, he looked at me and again, and he said, well, you know, it will be tough, but you're welcome to come out for the team. And so I came out for the team and, you know, I think he probably thought I'd quit the first time I got a really hard hit or practice was really tough that I would be gone, but I wasn't gone. And I didn't quit for the first time. And I became the second string wide receiver, the guy who catches passes um, for a division one football team, the top level uh, of football in collegiate football in the United States. Yeah. And then I quit. Uh, Even after obtaining that level because I didn't think I was good enough. Yeah. And I went to the coach and said, you know, I'm leaving the program. I'm actually transferring schools. Um, and he wanted to know why, because I was gonna be his number one wide receiver the next year. And I said, well, I'm not good enough. And he said, look, you're a freshman. Jake, who is the starter, was a senior. I was at the time, like I wish I was now, 175 pounds, and he was 200 pounds. And he said, you know, we needed this year a blocking wide receiver, but your turn is coming next year. You're a better wide receiver right now as a freshman than Jake is as a senior. And then he said something that stunned me and kind of rocked me, and he said, and you saw that Jake just got drafted into the NFL. Yeah. And I was better than him as a freshman. But because I didn't believe in myself, yeah. I walked away. <laughs> and I transferred schools and became a, um, decided that you know I missed football. And I went and asked the head football coach if I could come out. And he asked the same question. You know, where, uh, what did I play in high school? And I said, I didn't. And he turns his back on me and throws up his arms and says, never mind. I'm not interested. And there was nothing I could do to get into his good graces. Well, I had become a physical education major at that point in time, and I had to learn how to coach other sports. And one of those sports was what we call here soccer. Yeah. And after a while, the coach came to me and said, you know, if you work at this, by the time you're a senior, you could play for us. And so my senior year in college, I played uh, college soccer. And the next year I played at the professional level for a year, but I was never that athlete that really hung in there mentally. Yeah. Well, after that, I, I went to grad school, uh, in a sports science, sports psychology program because I wanted to be a better coach. Cause I blame the coaches you know, cause I didn't like people yelling at me and yeah. abusing me. And and I thought that's what the problem was. Mm-hmm. And the first day of grad school, or I was asked to come in and show up and talk to my um, department chair because I was going to be teaching in the program. And uh, he said he was on the phone. He had his feet up on the desk and he said, talk to Bruce. I'll be with you in a minute. And, um, Bruce was this older gentleman with a big smile on his face and, and he said, so tell me about yourself. You know, what's your background? Did you play sports in high school or college? Did you, um, you know, what do you want to do with your degree? And I gave him a story pretty much like what I just told you. And Bruce's reaction was different. Bruce laughed at me. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, your, your, your lack of self-confidence your um your problems with motivation your inability to handle stress under pressure obviously from some things i said to him and he said those are skills and you could learn them at any time and i said so who are you (laughs) and uh yeah this is a 21 year old talking to this older gentleman who Mm -hmm. At that time, he was actually younger than I am right now by about mm. a decade, mm-hmm. uh, but he was an old man for somebody who's 21. Um, <laughs> and he told me his last name, and then the light bulb went off because his last name was Ogilvy, and he's recognized around the world as, at least in North America, as the father of sports psychology. And he was my department chair's best friend. And, um, at that point in time, my, uh, department chair stood up, walked towards the door and said to Bruce, let's go to lunch. And so I'm sitting there like this big dummy saying, uh, did you want me for something? (laughs) And all of a sudden my department chair turns to me and, and throws me his keys and said, I'm driving or you're driving. And I was, so I was either adopted at that point or put into involuntary servitude. I'm still not sure which, which way that (laughs) that goes. Uh, But for the next two years, I worked with them training um, all of the athletes that he had helping train all the athletes had coming through that included world-class and professional athletes. And, you know, in the end, we worked with the Denver Broncos and yeah. they went to their first Super Bowl appearance, and i've been training athletes ever since a few years after that i I went to do my doctoral work at the University of Virginia under bob Rutella. Um and i've been doing it ever since and um, but it be what I came to understand is that you know I missed my opportunity as an athlete mm-hmm. but if I could Help others utilize their mental skills to perform at a higher level, they wouldn't have the same kind of regrets that I have. I mean, yeah. my life's been up and down because of circumstance, you know, all my life. Yeah. Success and failure. Yeah. But the only regret I ever have is really leaving football because I had the opportunity. But I wasn't mentally strong, mentally tough enough mm-hmm. to stick it out. Yeah. That's my story and I'm sticking to it.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I think the key things that came out there, Mike, was um self-belief, motivation, and deal with pressure in situations then, would you say?
1: Absolutely. And yep. the only other problem that we see um and it, it was also affected it also affected me, is attentional focus? Can you stay focused under pressure with confidence? You know, in, in my case and in say in, uh, in American football, can I go up for a pass when, you know, the other guy on the other side of the line would like to decapitate me <laughs> and s- stay focused on the ball? Or in terms of, you know, your football, you know, when I've got a shot on goal and even though I, I, feel some, I feel pressure coming from the side, can I still strike the ball and send it home? Yeah. So those are the, those are the primary things that we, we focus on.
0: Yeah. Um, so in regards to staying with, <clears throat> as you were speaking about, helping athletes and um, getting them to a higher level, how do you build that relationship then to help them to get to that next level? when you're working with your athletes?
1: Well, I think the first thing, um, and this is true with everything that we do, the first thing comes in terms of rapport. Can you establish rapport? Can you establish a relationship with the person that you're working with? And that means, can you establish them if they're in your office or you know, in this new world of ours? Yeah. Can we establish it via Zoom or Skype or something like that? And so how do we build that trust? And part of that is by, by listening. You know, um, a lot of times athletes have these feelings and, you know, if they tell their coach that, you know, I'm not, I don't feel real confident going into today's match, what's the coach going to do? You're not going to say, put their arm around them and say, hey, you can do it. Mm-hmm. They might yell, you can do it. They might, you know, or if they fail or if they, they don't perform as well, then they get screamed at. So how do you internalize those things and not let it affect you so that you can move forward? So listening, establishing that rapport is how we get started in the beginning.
0: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, coming out of that then is also working, working with Obviously, you mentioned coaches there. I presume you were talking about the sports coach. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So obviously, working with yourself and the sports coach to be able to build that confidence with the athlete as well with what you do and what they do.
1: Yeah. And as much as I can, I try to have, with the athlete's permission, of course, which doesn't happen all the time, I try to include the coach, not necessarily in the sessions, Mm-hmm. But so that the coach understands what we 're working on, yeah. and you know when i 've worked with some teams, the coaches are always there because we, we want to be on the same page, and so if i 'm working with a team i 'm going to have a i 'm going to have conversations with the coaches and utilize the direction that they want to go in, uh, maybe reframing things so that you know the message can get across.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because as you say, I mean, the, the sports coach and the psych, the the psychological coach are two different ball games. But you have to kind of come along and get on the same level, don't you?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've I have worked with teams or athletes within a team, and you know, the athlete will come in and say, you know, the coach is t- saying us to do this, or saying, you know, mental toughness is basically. Being able to run until you throw up—that's yeah. how we're going to teach mental toughness, you know. Uh, and they don't understand that. Okay, h- helping a, uh, an athlete become more mindful, helping an athlete to understand what their um, uh, what their motivation is, is going to help them break through those workout barriers that they might have rather than just being yelled at and saying that, you know, you're not, um, strong enough, you know, in, in sport, especially in the, the male sport arena, it's, yeah. you're not manly enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so coaches often try guilt and shame and we have to sometimes then working with an athlete is have them understand that what is the message versus what is the delivery method?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so you were saying there, obviously, about words as well. Would you agree that words are very powerful, obviously, to the mind, and as you're saying, how they affect athletes when they're you know, told these things and how to do these things?
1: Uh, language is, is very important. You know, the way that we understand language, the way our brain interprets language, the way that our brain does not, and our mind does not really um, integrate the word no very well. Yeah. It doesn't integrate negatives very well. So if you tell somebody don't choke, they hear, the the brain is hearing the word choke.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and there's plenty of evidence to, to show us from a cognitive behavioral standpoint that this is, is very true. Yeah. So we have to watch the way we talk to people, the way we address them, because there are much easier ways to, to get through to somebody than just throwing about a bunch of negatives at them.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so more on a personal level now then, Mike, um, how different would you say your approach to sports psychology is compared to someone who only focuses on athletes?
1: Um, I don't think I, I understood your question. So,
0: All right. Um, um, so obviously you teach people to be successful in life, not just in sports. So how, how would you say your your approach to psychology is different compared to someone who only focuses on The athletic side of things the sports side of things
1: well what i have observed over all these years is that you know specifically when i'm working with athletes that what happens is is that they become more mentally in control of their game that it doesn't stop there and you know all of the athletes that i've worked with over the years or almost all the athletes i'm I'm sure that there's some that didn't but you know from the reports that i get everybody does better in school they're better socially i've got an athlete that i'm working with right now who is a um uh, she's a fencer
0: okay
1: and um you know we were coming to the end of their sessions and um i thought okay you know, she's not totally engaged with what we're doing. You know, I don't think that uh, she's going to renew. And I really wanted them to renew because I saw that this is a, 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 a person who could really benefit. And all of a sudden, you know, she, about our eighth session, she's coming in and she's talking about how well she's doing in school. Um, you know, where she was struggling beforehand yeah. and how much easier it is to do her homework. And they renewed their commitment more from that perspective because their daughter was doing better, not only in fencing, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but in, in school itself. Mm -hmm. And this has been my observations. I've had people write me after 20 years, um, saying, you know, saying, you know, I was able to use the lessons that I learned in sport and from mental training, and I applied that to college, and you know, I've got letters from a guy who graduated from med school, engineering school, law school, which I told him, well, that's not my fault that she became a lawyer, um, <laughs> but um, you know, we see it um, move over into other areas of life, so a long time ago, when I started making these observations, I realized that we needed to incorporate, you know, I needed to mention, okay, you know, you're using imagery or you're using relaxation, you're using stress management techniques mm-hmm. to prepare yourself for competition. How about doing that for your schoolwork? What if you used your mindfulness and practice that before you did your homework? would that make your homework easier? What if you used your goal setting techniques to look at what you wanted to accomplish in terms of moving forward in a career or moving forward to in college. And so very much taking a portion of that time and not just keeping it to sport, because when people use these mental skills in their everyday life, it makes life easier. You know, if, um, you know, like, Chris, do you have a mindfulness practice? I'll throw this back at you. Uh,
0: yeah, I do um, positive meditation or guided meditation 10 minutes every day mm-hmm. in the morning. And yeah. before I, or just as I get out of bed, I'll do 10 minutes in the morning. And it's, it, it makes, for me, personally, it, it, it makes the day a lot more well, I know you, you, you wake up in a, in a positive mindset. You know, you, you get going after, you know, you've got a positive mindset. From, from my personal experience, I you don't know. What about you, Mike?
1: <laughs> well, I, I, think that's, I think that's what we experience most of the time. Now, yeah. what I tell my athletes to do um, is also that at the end of their day, they take that 10 minutes. And by end of the day, usually, I, I mean the end of the work day. Because what does that allow you to do? It allows you to take all the stuff that's built up during the day and you get to set it aside. So for somebody who has a family or, um, I mean, if it's a young athlete, obviously their family interaction or their interactions with their their friends, they're not carrying over all that schoolwork or, you know, what happened during the day. And so it allows them to be more attentive and in a better mood when they're interacting with family members, for instance. And that brings more energy to the next day.
0: Yeah. So essentially as well, I think it takes the pressure off as well, doesn't it? I mean, if you're doing it at the end of the work day, for example, it takes the pressure off immediately from what you've been thinking about during the day and you can kind of relax into the, well, you know, into whatever else you're doing that doesn't involve the work.
1: Absolutely. And it just keeps you more focused on the things that are important and yeah. mindfulness, remember, or for people in your audience that don't know, it's the, the art of being, the art and science really of being present. Yeah. And so if You know, you're a student and you've been working on a a term paper and, you know, you got all this stuff going on in your head, but then you're going to be with your family, your brothers and sisters, or you're going to be with friends and you still got that rattling in your head. How can you be attentive to them if you've got that going on? So by being able to do this and putting it aside, at least for a little while, you may have to get back to that homework assignment. Yeah. But at least when you're interacting with friends and family or maybe doing something else, then you're gonna be a lot more efficient and a lot more effective at that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um so yeah, the key things coming out of that I think is how that kind of works is gives you a, a focus a focus on the now, the present, a bit more, give attention to the to the present moment and you know just being being there rather than being someplace else in the mind
1: yeah you know there's a famous uh statement um it's actually a book title from um a meditation teacher who's taught thousands of people how to meditate and his book was called be here now yeah and i don't i don't suggest athletes all read that book but i have co-opted the title, if you will, (laughs) because I think that as a saying to yourself, it's a really important one. Be here now. Be present, Mm -hmm. whether you're at practice, whether you're at school, whether you're at family, with loved ones, with a significant other. When you're there with them, be there with them.
0: Yeah.
1: And don't be thinking about what happened an hour ago or 10 minutes ago uh, It doesn't mean that we don't plan for the future. And this is something that some people misinterpret when, when we say be here now in the present, it doesn't mean that you can't goal set that you can't think you can't strategize for Mm -hmm. the future. You absolutely do. But that's a moment in time where you're present Thinking about, okay, how do I, what do I, what do I have tomorrow? I mean, we were on chatting last night because we had to decide what time we were going to do this. Yeah, yeah. If we didn't think about the future in that moment, I would have been on here at um, 10 or 11 this morning instead of at noon. Yeah. And you would have wondered where I was because I would have said, oh, well, he forgot about it. Yep. So we have to strategize. We have to look to the future, but when we're working, when we're when we're training, we have to be present.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, uh, in regards to training, um, or, um, for example, being present in the moment obviously gives you a better chance of being able to execute a lot better as well on your training. Would you agree with that, Mike?
1: Absolutely. You know if. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry for using American football um, kinds of things, but uh, I'll I'll switch it to a racket sport in a minute. But if if I'm a wide receiver and I'm going up and I've got to jump up and catch a pass, but my mind is two seconds ahead of me about, you know, that linebacker that's going to hit me, Mm -hmm. then I'm not focused on catching the ball. The same thing, I mean, look at racket sports and what happens to so many players, say in tennis, where you know maybe they miss their first serve and they're getting ready for their second serve, which they have uh, you know an eighty or ninety percent chance of getting in, but they're still focused on i'm mad because I missed that you know I missed that first serve, so they're stuck in the past. Mm-hmm that lowers their odds of getting that second serve in. And that's why we see so many, um, when you look at those lost points, when we unforced errors in yeah. tennis or badminton or, or squash, those unforced errors quite often are because we're stuck with what happened either in the last shot or yeah. maybe even 20 minutes earlier.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can relate to that obviously because I'm a squash player myself so i can relate to being you know doing these things in the past obviously when i was younger i used to have um play a shot and make a mistake and like 5 minutes later 10 minutes later i'm still thinking about it so it's taking my focus off my accuracy for my game and concentrating on what's happening with the, with the playing stuff so i can i can totally relate to that yeah
1: i mean it it happens in all sports i've seen i've worked with golfers That you know, go out on the on the first tee, and they're thinking the last time I was on this course, I hit it out of bounds, Mm -hmm. and so they're maybe even a year they're stuck a year ago, and what do they do? They end up hitting it out of bounds again. Yeah. So we have to stay present to give ourselves the best opportunity for success.
0: Yeah, definitely. And so what would you say, Mike, and how do you see mental toughness training and how does that work for athletes?
1: Well, with mental toughness training or mental training or however we want to phrase it, um, you know, we've spent I mean, certainly when I was an athlete, um, the focus was totally on the physical side. And my failures were on the mental side. Didn't matter how fast I got or how strong I got. It was, if there was any disappointment, if I were to drop a pass or miss a shot or anything, you know, it took me completely out of the game. So with mental training, we focus on those skills that will make us most effective, make us most efficient. You know, um, I've asked this question thousands of times to audiences and and athletes. So you've probably been told at one point or another, just relax. Yeah. And oftentimes I get blank stares. And typically the first question that comes to mind from an athlete, when you tell them just relax, is they're going to go, you mean I'm not relaxed? (laughs) and the second thing is how do you want me to do that because we don't teach it so that's one aspect you know that we don't generally teach these things we tell people just relax Mm -hmm. but we don't teach them how Mm -hmm. and it's not a hard process as you are probably aware but we have to, it's something that not everybody grew up learning. Yeah. I was with a, uh, one of the 10 best, uh, a few years ago, I was um, flown back into Seattle where I would lived for almost 20 years and to work with um, one of the top 10 basketball, high school basketball teams in the nation. And I started out asking that question. And, you know, the answer was when I said, how do you relax? I got Well, I play video games. I listen to music. Mm -hmm. Um, One guy um, actually took his fingers and went like this, meaning he was smoking marijuana. Um, But that's what people know. You know, if you ask business people or people that work in a regular job, how do you relax when you get home from work? what are most of them going to say? They, they sit on the couch, they watch TV and they drink a beer or something like that Yeah. because they don't know how to do it any other way. Mm-hmm. And so part of mental training, mental skills training is teaching people these different steps. So whether it's um, learning how to relax, how to deal with stress, learning to use imagery the right way, um, learning how to focus, uh, learning to be mindful. These are all skills. And just as Bruce Ogilvie told me as, as one of my mentors, you can learn these things at any time. Yeah. But they have to be taught because mm-hmm. not everybody understands how to do them.
0: Yeah. Um, I can relate, obviously, with the, you know, relaxing sort of when in your sport because <clears> – <throat> As I've gotten older and playing squash, I now find that relaxing has obviously made my game a lot better. Uh, being able to relax on the court while I'm on court and concentrate on the moment and just be able to relax. And I feel it's improved my game a lot. Um, so obviously I can understand what you're saying. So a lot of the a lot of the listeners will probably kinda of understand from a racket sport sort of um standpoint that the games replay and racket sports are very fast and very quick so your mind has to be sharp and you also have to kind of obviously be in the moment and try and relax as well so
1: well I mean also think of it this way um imagine yourself on the racquetball court or on the squash court yeah I taught I used to teach racquetball as I think I yeah, told yeah. you once but yeah yeah um but you're on the squash court and you're getting ready to serve and you've got your arm and you've got, you know, you've got a really, you're flexing your bicep and your tricep, <clears throat> and you've got it really hard. Are you going to make a good serve doing that? No, not at all. It has to be loose and fluid so that you can apply that power to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So it's not yeah. just about being mentally relaxed. You have to learn to physically relax your body because if you have tightness in your shoulder, because that's where, you know, uh, stress affects us differently in the body, different people in the body in different places. But if you've got shoulder tension and because you're a little bit nervous, that's going to take X amount of energy miles. Well, energy, but I'm thinking even in terms of I was going to say kilometers per hour yeah. off off the speed of your serve
0: mm-hmm.
1: that you're leaving. You know, it's like you're taking it away. Yeah. Because you're not relaxed enough. Now that doesn't mean we're you know a, a um, you know that our bodies are like jello and that we've <laughs> got no muscle at all. Yeah. But yeah. the ability to tense muscles at the right time yeah. is what performance is all about, yeah. whether it's hitting a squash ball or running fast. I mean, the example I use a lot is, um, you know, there's this guy from Jamaica named uh, Hussein Bolt. Oh yeah. Right? Yep. <laughs> and if you remember, if, if you remember back to, um, I think it was the London Olympics, right? Was that his first uh, big step in the stage or was that, I can't, I'm losing track, China China then then London or London then
0: China? Not sure on that one. Yeah, I can't
1: remember. But either way, it was such a surprise is that, you know, he doesn't start well. Mm -hmm. So there are other people that start at the same point. And then he starts to build power. And then you see his whole body relaxed. Yeah. And what happens when he relaxes? He accelerates past everybody else Mm -hmm. because he's using his muscles efficiently. Yeah, And that's the lesson for all of us is that performance is based on tightening and relaxing muscles in in the correct sequence. But if you don't know how to feel those muscles, if you don't know how to relax those muscles, how are you going to perform to your best ability?
0: Yeah. Would you say then that um in that relaxed moment when you get to that relaxation point that the body and mind are in sync
1: well i'll 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 put it this way when you're not relaxed how can they be in sync
0: yeah yeah
1: um now that does and you have to be um you know there there's there's a curve um oftentimes uh, called a um a uh, a U-shaped curve that relates to stress. Yep. And so if I were drawing it on the podcast for everybody it looks like a you know just a a U and at the top of the U is where performance is best. Yeah. So you have to learn but the only way you know that is by being really relaxed or being mm-hmm. tense. Yep. And that's, why you, that's when you can find what's at the top of that you. Yep. But if you never learn to relax completely, how do you find that space? And that's part of what we do with mental skills training.
0: Yeah. Yep. So, moving on then, Mike, to more specifically imagery training. Um, in your opinion, how can imagery training take an athlete to the top of their game? Well,
1: excuse me, Um, the use of imagery has been recognized for, oh, I don't know, about uh, 70 years or so as helping people improve their performance. Um, Back 70, 80 years ago, we called it mental practice and over the years, it's become a little more refined. Uh, The research I did at the U.S. Olympic Training Center was all focused on imagery. How do elite athletes image? Do they image differently than lower-level athletes? Yeah. And so for the most part, people should be using imagery in the first person, which means they should be seeing what they're doing through their own eyes. So if you're standing on the squash court, you're not seeing your back, you're not seeing your ears, you're not seeing yourself from the side, you're looking, you're imagining what you would see through your own eyes. So maybe you're focused on the spot that you want to serve the ball. You know, you turn and you see where your opponent is standing and that's considered first person. Yeah. But there is, in my research, there is a reason to focus on the third person as well. Uh, third person being like you're watching yourself on video, and that can be very powerful in terms of making changes to your game. Um, I did a study. I did the study at the Olympic Training Center, and you know the top four athletes in that group in terms of the testing that we did were totally opposite of the athletes that weren't. And these were the top 20 uh, elite junior figure skaters in the world, or in the, in the United States. Four of them used imagery differently than the other 16. Yeah. Those four all went to the Olympics, all won medals at the world championships. Yeah. And the others didn't. And some of those others were, were higher ranked skaters than the four that, that worked. Um, back in uh, the late 70s, I worked with um, uh, a young man who was a decathlete. Yep. And um, you know there was a, uh, the number one decathlete in the world at the time came from the UK. Uh, his name was Daley Thompson, or his name is Daley Thompson,
0: yeah,
1: and um, um, this this guy was a friend of his, but he was ranked number ten in the world when I started working with him and um, he's a, most decal are like six three to six five, and this young man was like five nine, uh, but he was the u s collegiate national champion, but he was losing points on um, the, the more powerful kinds of activities like the discus and the shot put. Yeah. Uh, the shot put, he was fairly happy with his, his distance, but he felt like he was m- losing points with the discus. And so we're working with his imagery on that. And we've been working together for, you know, six weeks, two months. And he calls me at my office on the phone. He said, you'll never guess what happened. I just threw it 170 feet. He'd been throwing 140 feet. Yeah. So he increased his distance by 30 feet, which for a world-class athlete is a lot. You know, 30 inches is a lot, let alone 30 feet. And he said he was doing the imagery like we talked about, going from first person to third person. And in the third person, he noticed that his hand was releasing the discus at the wrong angle. And as soon as he changed that angle in his mind, he started seeing himself throw further and further. Mm -hmm. That afternoon he went out to practice at the university and, you know, his first throw is 150 feet, the best he's ever thrown. Yeah. And then 50, 55, and then up to 70. That weekend I was at a track meet with him at UCLA and he, he threw one 177 feet. Yeah. All because he changed it in his mind. Yep. Not because of anything else he'd been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't compete in those Olympics because that was the Olympics that uh, the United States didn't participate in, which was in in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and so he stopped working with me because he didn't want to waste my time because we, we were I was working with him gratis uh, mm-hmm. as a favor to my uh, to somebody. Yeah. And he said he would continue his training, but he didn't. And all of a sudden his mark started to go back down. Now I know this because not only did he tell me that, but some 30 years later uh, via LinkedIn, he calls me and says, hey, do you remember me, you know, from a long time ago? So, and he was, and this is another one who transitioned his mental training after he was done with competition, to his business, and employed the same thing, and became a very successful small business person who made um, cabinets and um, you know uh, did design work for bathrooms and yeah. uh, and kitchens, you know the point where he's he's doing stuff for celebrities. I mean, he did a quarter million dollar bathroom remake. Wow. <laughs> but he utilized what he had learned. Yeah. Once he left the decathlon world, he yeah. moved it to his the rest of his life. Yeah. And I think that's an important lesson for everybody to understand.
0: It yeah, definitely. So for any racket athletes listening that are at any level in the sport, and taking it also from taking it from your performance into your life as well is key for you know, success and, you know, using psychology in life as well as sport?
1: Well, the reality is, and I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, take sh- shots at sports like squash, yep. but you're going to earn a living. Are you going to earn a living as a professional in squash or are you going to be able to take that information and apply it to whatever else you do? Yeah. Um, you know, for, for a lot of the athletes that I work with, you know, a lot of them are going to get to college. They're going to be able to participate at the college level. But if you're a fencer, if you're a, a racquetball player, if you're, a, you know, whatever it is, the likelihood of you making a living in those sports is, is pretty small. Even if you're a, you know, division one basketball player, the likelihood of your playing in the NBA is really small, no matter how good you were in college. Mm -hmm. But how do you apply those lessons to the rest of your life so that you can live a happy, joyful, productive life? Mm -hmm. It's the same kinds of skills. And that's really a very important thing where we focus on performance Mm -hmm. because I don't work with people who have, um, I don't work with depressed people. I don't work with people that have mental health issues. I work with people who are energetic and healthy Mm -hmm. and they just want to perform at that next level. Yeah. And that's all we can really ask for in our lives is can I be as good as I want to be?
0: Yeah. So the thing that I kind of I'm catching on to there as well is <clears throat> all these skills you learn, whether you make it to the highest level in your sport or you don't, you can still take those skills away and use them and utilize them.
1: Absolutely. Uh, when you think of it, for non-athletes. You know whether you're going to med school or engineering school or law school or you know even if you're you know even if you you go to a technical school uh, or you just go into a job anywhere and you want to be good at what you do yeah you just don't show up you know showing up is obviously part of it you can't be successful if you don't show up. Yep. But how you show up is going to determine how successful you are.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So moving on then, Mike, how would you say, or what, what, what would you say an athlete brings to the table of the sport if they have high emotional intelligence?
1: Well, when an athlete has a higher level of emotional intelligence, it allows them to better deal with the people around them. As well as dealing with themselves. Yes. So, if they understand that, um, in the instance of an athlete who's being coached, you know, if they understand that their coach wants the best for them, but may not deliver the message in the most effective way, that's using their emotional intelligence. I've run into athletes uh, over the years that require negative feedback. You know, uh worked with a, a high school or not a, a college wrestler back when I was doing my doctoral work at Virginia. And, you know, his coaches told me if they praise him, he'll walk out of the, the training session because all he wants to hear is how bad he is. Yeah. You know, so, to, to that, so that he would work harder towards what he wanted. Yeah. Uh, but those athletes are few and far between. But even with that guy, at least he understood that he needed from his, from an emotionally intelligent stand, most emotional intelligence standpoint, he understood what he needed. Yeah. That it was a screwed up need. That's Mm -hmm. something that, you know, in the short term we couldn't deal with. Yeah. But by understanding how he could work with that negative, um, energy, Mm -hmm. you know, he had to twist it so that it made him better. And that's part of, in, in, uh, um, that's part of emotional intelligence. There was a interesting article that I read a couple of weeks ago, and and this goes along even with the the research that I did back in the, uh, the eighties, although we didn't call it this, but the strategic understanding of what you are doing, uh, what in psychology is called metacognition—knowing what you know. Yeah, and that's that was part of the 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 study I did at the Olympic Training Center. Is knowing what you know from a metacognitive standpoint. That's part of a big part of emotional intelligence, understanding who you are, what you are in terms of. You know, what, how do you motivate yourself? How do you get motivated even more by others? That's by definition, emotional intelligence. Well, it's metacognition. It is knowing what you know, Yep. most of us, or a lot of people go around having other people push their buttons and yep. not understanding completely how to push your own. And that's yep. part of emotional intelligence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah that's great Mike so what what, what piece of advice would you give to an athlete wanting to get the most out of a sports psychology program from all your experience how would you sum that up what piece of advice you would mean you-
1: besides calling me
0: <laughs> oh um,
1: you know the most important things are being mindful learning how to deal with stress being focused, using imagery. Overall, it's recognizing that you're not just a physical being. Yeah. And how you go about doing that is, I mean, you can read a book, and I'm happy, you know, when people buy my book, The Athlete Within You, shameless plug. Um, (laughs) I'm happy with that, available on Amazon. Uh, I'm happy with that. But, you know, I even say this, I, I believe in, 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 in part of the forward, you know, a book gives you guidelines. It gives you the opportunity to understand how to do something. But for most of us, I really believe we need some kind of guidance in that area. Yeah. So whether you seek out guidance on Google, looking at how do other athletes uh, mentally train or whether you go to somebody and and work with them to get, you know, a clearer direction, but do something. Understand that we're just not physical beings. Yeah. And that, you know, I describe it uh, sometimes as, you know, when we're growing up, it's kind of like a buffet line. Um, during COVID, of course, there are no buffet lines, but uh, <laughs> it's like a buffet line, you know. And you're going along the line. You go, okay, I like that. I don't like that. I'll take some of that. And maybe they were out of that when you pass down, pass down the line. Yeah. And so sometimes we miss these little pieces mm-hmm. when we're growing up. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that we can't learn them later. Yeah, definitely. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. They figure, all right, they they see the evidence that our personalities are developed by the time we're eight to 10 years old. That's what we're stuck with. Mm -hmm. But we're not. We can make changes. Yeah. We can, you know, I obviously, when I was going through that buffet line growing up, I didn't understand confidence. Yeah. You know, if somebody yelled at me, if I didn't do as well as I, as in my case, maybe it was if I didn't do as well as my parents expected me to do on something, yeah. it shook my confidence level. Yeah. And I didn't learn how to deal with that yeah. until, you know, I, I was out of the sport world. Yeah. At least as a, as a high level competitor. I mean, I competed until, uh, you know, the body kind of wore out at, a, at around 50 years old. So
0: Yeah. So would you like agree on then that people need to understand sometimes the difference between a fixed mindset and, you know, thinking this is all I can do and having a growth mindset and thinking, well, no, I can do more.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to have a mindset um, that's directed. Yeah. you know, um, the definition oftentimes of fear or failure is that no matter what I do, this is su- as successful as I can be. It yeah. doesn't mean that they don't want to be a world champion, mm-hmm. but they have accepted that, you know, they're going to be limited. And what's the problem with, okay, if I, you know, like I have athletes come in all the time that are, you know, 14 years old mm-hmm. and they say they want to play professional soccer. They want to play professional tennis. You know, there are some that would say, well, you know, that's not very realistic. Yeah. And why would you do that to somebody who's 14 years old now? Exactly. Exactly when i get athletes that come in and you know they're 14 years old and they're 5 foot 2 and they say they want to play in the nba yeah. we might have a conversation about reality yeah but that doesn't mean that they can't become the best that they can become so yeah. we do have you know what some people even in sports psychology forget is that you know, at least in terms of my thoughts on what mental training is really about. Mental training is about the integration of mind and body. Yeah. We can't separate them. And that's what a lot of people do. The physical trainers separate it. It's all about your physical training, your skills training. A lot of sports psychology people will say, no, it's all up here in your head. It's not. It's the combination of the two. And so when we train mentally and physically together, we're going to get the best results.
0: Yeah. Okay, Mike. And where can uh, people find you on social media and, and what, what, what things you offer?
1: Well, they can find me, uh, the easiest way to find me is on my website, which is um, wwwthemental and I'm on Facebook, and they can look my name up. Um, uh, I used to be on Twitter and I got hacked, and they gave my uh, my Twitter name away to somebody else. so oh, okay. um I'm not I, I've stopped doing Twitter, but uh, and my Instagram page is more um, on a new venture. I'm also a professional photographer. And, uh, so my Instagram page is more about photography than it is about mental training, but the mental game is where the the mental hyphen game is where people can get me. And I work with people around the world via, uh, via zoom. Yeah, Uh, I've got a meeting tonight at 10 PM with, um, somebody who's in Taipei in Taiwan. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with people in China, in India, in the Middle East, in Europe. Um, yeah. I've got a player right now playing professional basketball in um, in Italy. Uh, I've got um, a professional player um, that I don't talk to very often that that plays in in the Premier League in in the UK. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, it's people can reach me anyway. And, um, you know, in this, in this pandemic world, um, you know, I've been, I've been working on zoom or on Skype, uh, Mm. for over a decade, working with people around the world. So I'm easy to get in touch with and more than, uh, more than willing to help people.
0: Great. That's great, Mike. Uh, Thanks for coming on.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, guys and girls, that is another Racket Athic podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed listening and please leave a review.